Amen. Thank you, Miss Emily. I want to actually ask you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the Matthew, Gospel of Matthew in chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one underneath the chair you're sitting in or close to you. Matthew chapter 19, and I'll read verses 1 through 12. Please stand with me again in the honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. Matthew chapter 19, beginning with verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them, he healed them there. Verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning and made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not every man, not every one, can receive this same, but only to those to whom it's given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Let's pray together. Father, you are a gracious God, and you're a glorious God, and I pray that we would see your nature and your character in this text this morning. That we would not only know what we should do, but we should know why we do it and what motivates us to do it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. There's many different situations in which people may ask the question, am I better off not married? Someone may ask themselves, of course, if they're having marital troubles and marital problems. In our day is of no-fault divorce, certainly that question is asked by a lot of people. And perhaps some of you this morning may be asking yourself that question, who are married? Am I better off not married? And then sometimes there's people who've never been married who, who may take some solace to think, well, maybe I'm just better off not married. That's how the disciples come to conclude in verse 10 when they consider the weightiness of what marriage is. They say, hey, maybe we're better off not being married anyway if it's going to be that hard. Then there are those who've been through divorce and wonder whether or not they can be married again. And there's all sorts of questions that come up with this particular topic. And so I've titled the message this morning, Am I Better Off Not Married? with a question mark. And the answer to that question is simply to say, let God answer that. Because essentially that's what Jesus does in this passage of Scripture. He is God, and he goes back to Scripture. He goes back to the book of Genesis when he's asked this question about, hey, can we divorce our wives for any reason at all? What does Jesus do? He says, well, let's just see how God's already answered that in the Bible. 
And when it comes to these questions that come to our mind about divorce and remarriage or being single and, or am I better off married or not, let's let God answer that. You see, in the passage of Scripture, what it, well, the way it starts off in verse 1 through 2, there's a test of Jesus. You notice the word tested is used in verse 3. If you're looking at your Bible, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him. Now, where was it that Jesus was in verses 1 through 2? Jesus was in the area of Judea. And Judea happened to be the place where John the Baptist had his head cut off. And you remember what got John the Baptist's head cut off, what he was doing? as he was preaching about marriage to somebody that was living with somebody that was not his wife. In fact, Herod and Herodias were having an adulterous affair. And he began to preach about marriage to them. And you know what happened? He got his head cut off. So I suppose that when Jesus finds him in, a, in the similar area within Judea, I suppose that the Pharisees testing him, not just supposing, but looking at what the Bible actually says in verse 3, that they tested him that it was for the hope and purpose that they might be able to trap him as he told what he would, would say about the answer to their question that this would not find favor in the court of public opinion and that what happened to John the Baptist might even happen to Jesus Christ, that he might have his head cut off. So here we find ourselves with this question being asked in verse 3 again, Look at the end of verse 3. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, in the history of Jewish interpretation of Scripture, no doubt they're alluding to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. If you want to go back and look at that later. Jesus, they, they quote part of it later here in this passage of Scripture. I believe it's verse 9 or 8. And there were two different schools of Jewish thought. There was a liberal school. He had liberals and conservatives. And the liberals were, was the school of Hillel. He was a Jewish rabbi. And they were very liberal in their interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24. And what they thought was when it said a man was, could give his wife a certificate of divorce for something indecent found in her was for any reason at all. I mean, if she burned a toast, you could divorce her. If she got up the next morning and she just didn't look good to you any morning, you could, that was a reason enough to divorce your wife. Which is kind of where we find ourselves today in our own culture, isn't it? And then there was a school of, the other school, I can't remember the name, Shammai, the conservative school. And when they looked at scripture, they said that something indecent most likely was for adultery or a sexual immorality. And so they hoped to trap Jesus and get him to try to maybe come down and offend most of the people which would have been in the school of Hillel. But you see, Jesus is no politician. He's not just going to try to please people that are from the school of Hillel, the conservatives, or the liberals. Jesus is just going to tell the truth because he's God and he can't do nothing other than that, right? And so when we look at what Jesus says, he simply says, let's go back and see what has already been said in Scripture because it, it still stands. It's still true. And so what you see is the test in court of public opinion versus the answers already given by God in the Bible. So what's he say in verse 4? What's your Bible say in verse 4? He answered, have you not read? Have you not read? Have you forgotten what the Bible says? Have you misunderstood the scripture? Have you, have you simply forgotten to go back and look at the Bible? Well, there's a lot of big questions that come up in relation to this topic and 
The big questions I want to, I think, the, I believe the passage of Scripture seeks to answer for us this morning is this. What has God said about marriage? That's really what we need to be concerned about. What has God said about marriage, divorce, and singleness? So there's a little bit in here for all of us. What's God said about marriage, divorce, and singleness? And here's a big question. Why does he care? Why does God care about marriage? Why does he care about our singleness? Why does he care about divorce and remarriage? Why does he have a word to say about it? What's this going to tell us about this God that we assembled here on October 20th, 2019 to worship? Why does it matter? Why should we care about divorce and divorce? Diverge. Help me. Pray for me this morning. I've not looked forward to preaching this passage of Scripture. Why should we care? Why, why can't we just act on the premise God wants me to be happy and just go for it based on what we feel like is going to make us be happy because after all, God wants me to be happy. And for some of us, then the answer to the question Better off not married is yes, because God wants me to be happy. Let's see how Scripture answers this, how Jesus answers this. Number one, God's design for marriage displays his faithfulness. And really the way I'm seeking to outline the passage of Scripture this morning is really the more important question, why does God care? The reason God cares is because God's design for marriage displays his faithfulness. I believe if you look in Ephesians chapter 5, which that's where we're at on Sunday nights right now. We happen to be in Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be there tonight. As we're reminded that marriage displays the relationship between Jesus and his church, between Christ and his church, his bride. God's design for marriage displays his faithfulness. You see, God defines marriage. So notice what he says in verse 4. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So God defines marriage. So let's just say briefly and quickly and clearly that marriage is between one woman and one man. He designed them male and female, one man and one woman. Not one man with many women. Or vice versa for that matter. And of course not one man with another man or one woman with another woman. God made them male and female. When Adam looked at Eve, he said, Whoa, man. She was compatible. She was complementary, meaning that he was not going to make him complete because when God looked at Adam, when God looked at his creation, he said, it is good. So it's not like if you're a single person that you're not complete unless you're married. That is not true. But certainly, if God blesses us with marriage, that, that spouse is intended to complement us. There are strengths and things in the way that God has made a woman and God has made a man in which it strengthens, it strengthens that, that individual as a couple for God's glory. Therefore, God's design is for one man and one woman. And God means it to be permanent. My, my youngest son, Titus, is bringing, he's got all kinds of little toys, and sometimes he'll bring them up to me and stuff he wants me to super glue for him. He's got an ink pen and, that's shaped like Abraham Lincoln. And I don't know how many times he's broke Abraham Lincoln's head off, want me to glue it back together, you know. <laughs> Would you glue Abraham Lincoln's head off again? I said, son, you've got to quit dropping it on concrete. 
And then when so you get it on that super glue, you know how it is, you gotta try to be careful not to get it on your fingers and you hold it together there for about 30, 45 seconds. And then I say, now I'm gonna sit up on top of the refrigerator because it's got a bond overnight and then tomorrow you get it. And you be careful, doggone it, and don't drop it again because I don't want to glue Abraham Lincoln's head off on again. In the passage of scripture here in chapter 19, verse four, he had said he made a male and female, but look at what he says in verse five. And he said, therefore a man shall leave his father, so therefore... In light of this, that God has male and female, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. In a lot of marriages, that don't happen, right? Mom's still brought along right into the marriage, and dad is, and all kinds of problems. Leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And that phrase, hold fast, means joined. It means cemented, right? Super glued together. Therefore, he, the scripture goes on to say, they shall hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He said, haven't you read that? Haven't you heard about that? So instead of directly answering this question, he just goes to scripture. He knows what they're up to, Jesus does. Verse six, the conclusion then is, so they are no longer two but one flesh. So God defines marriage as between one man and one woman. He cements them together. It truly is a marriage made in heaven. You may feel like, well, brother, it don't seem like my marriage is made in heaven. Well, brother, I'm here to tell you the Bible says it was. God joined you together. And it may not be all that you hoped it would be. But God joined you together. And the Bible says, let not man separate that. that that's hard, isn't it? That's why I don't want to preach on this. Because it's hard. But listen to what Scripture says. They're no longer two, but one flesh when they're cemented together. That's what God's done. God sees them as one. Two complete people. They don't cease. You don't lose your identity, but you cease to function as an individual. And that's where half the marriage problems comes along, right? So we want to do our own thing, and yet we're supposed to be married functioning as one. And we're thinking about ourselves. That's why my wife and I have problems sometimes. Well, I get selfish. Say things that are selfish. Do things that are selfish at times. Remember my brother one time. Now, if you knew my brother, my brother, him and I are daylight and dark. Remember one time I got in his vehicle and we were driving down the road and I had this Mountain Dew I was drinking and he... I said, where am I supposed to put this at? And he put this old nasty high top tennis shoe right between the two of us and he, and he jabbed that Mountain Dew inside that nasty high top tennis shoe. He said, that's a cup holder. <laughs> that's my brother. We pulled up in a parking lot one time at Walmart and he was having problems with his teeth and he just reached up in there, <laughs> crunch, and broke his tooth off right in the parking lot. <laughs> I said to myself, why are you doing that to yourself? That's gotta hurt. Scripture says they are no longer two but one flesh. Do you realize when these two become one flesh and they act selfishly and independently, it's like it's like breaking their it's like doing something strange to themselves, like breaking their tooth off in their own mouth. It's like ripping your own heart out. These two are one flesh. As one pastor said, they They've been divinely united to each other in a way that well, they will never be with anybody else. 
Everything that affects one affects the other. Every decision made. Each contribution that you make to strengthening yourself spiritually or mentally or emotionally would increase the overall strength of both of you. But to tear away at that relationship is like ripping your own flesh. It's like ripping, ripping your own heart out. We think to ourselves sometimes when we look at marriages, we maybe think about our own marriage. Why, why would we do that to ourselves? Will we rip our own heart out? But that's what we do when we act independently and selfishly. And, because, and, that's, and the reason marriage is hard because that truly is what happens in marriage. You truly are one. So, this is why we hear these words as we begin a wedding ceremony. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here in the sight of God and in the presence of this company to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is commended by the Apostle Paul to be honorable among all men and therefore is not by any to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, and in the fear of God. Into this holy estate, these two persons are now to be joined. In light of God's design, in light of what God does in marriage by cementing them together and joining them together, the two are one flesh. And knowing how one's behavior will affect the other for the rest of their life, it's not something to be entered into lightly or unadvisedly. So just a brief point of application here. It's not something to be rushed into. It's something to seek what Scripture says about. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Malachi does say God does hate divorce. He doesn't hate divorced people. But God does hate divorce. He says, let not man separate what God has joined together. So the objection, the thought we have come to our mind is, but pastor, a husband might say, I can't fix her. Her wife may say, I, I can't fix him. It's not your job anyway. He won't change. What's there to motivate me to stay in my marriage? Remember, God's design for marriage displays his faithfulness. What's to motivate us to stay in our marriage is the gospel. It's God's faithfulness. It's understanding that in our marriage, it's to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. And so I, I remain married, I stay married, so that I might glorify God in his own faithfulness. Because my faithfulness, despite my hurt, is, is to communicate God's own faithfulness to his church. It's as if... God has taken his promise, his vow upon himself. God, do you take this sinner to be your lawful, wedded bride? This church, this church full of sinners. God, you take us to be your lawful, wedded wife. And God says to each of us who have faith in Jesus, I do. He does. We're the bride of Christ. And it's not till death do we part. Amen? 
For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. Nor things present, nor things to come. No matter what's going on, it's not going to change his covenant with us. Nor things present, nor things to come. No matter what you did last night or what you can do next week, he's made a covenant. If you're a true believer, it's not going to be broken, right? Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And God's people said amen. You have a spouse in heaven that needs no fixing, who will never divorce you. And he intends that his love for his bride, the church, be reflected in our earthly marriages. And so our motivation to continue to be married is the gospel and how it displays the faithfulness of Almighty God. As David Platt says, God's so serious about our commitment to one another in marriage because God's so serious about his commitment to us. But pastor, I've sought to forgive 70 times seven, my spouse, over and over, maybe the same things. Pastor, he's the one that keeps ripping our heart out. We have, yes, we're one flesh and, and he's the one or she's the one because of their repetition, because of their, the way they live, they, they, they're, they're ripping our heart out. And I'm better off, am I better off not married? The second statement from the passage of scripture I want to make is this. God's allowance for divorce displays his mercy. God's allowance for divorce displays his mercy. In verse 7, if you look in the Bible, they respond to all this and they said to him, well, we hear what you're saying about the permanence of marriage, but why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Well, they're talking about a passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And in that passage of Scripture, if a husband uh, found something that says indecent in his wife, and of course the liberal school would say that could be burning toast or anything, conservative school would say, well, that's more like sexual immorality, and he could divorce his wife. Of course, the penalty for a wife committing adultery was really stoning to death then. And if you keep reading that passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy, if this man's wife went on and got married to somebody else and, and then divorced him, he could never remarry this wife. That's really what the passage of Scripture is talking about if you want to go back and look at it. I'm not going to try to get into it more than that. So what... Uh, a lot of the folks were doing in Jesus' day, just like a lot of folks want to do today, is they want to find a loophole in all this. A loophole to give themselves a reason for why they should not be married any longer. And of course, for that liberal school and for a lot of people today, that, that loophole is just as wide as you want it to be. Just get divorced for any reason at all. And I'll tell you right now, there are some people, and I disagree with them, that there are a few people who look at this passage of Scripture and they say it's based on uh, the Jewish betrothal period and that actually there is no ever reason for divorce. No exceptions. They don't think that exception here is really an exception. I totally disagree. I think that goes beyond the plain reading of the passage of Scripture. I'm not going to go into it further than that. In fact, I think if you look at 1 Corinthians 7, you see that the departure of an unbelieving spouse is a grounds for divorce as well. But I want you to notice here in verse 7, look at your Bible. Notice how they say that. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate? 
Well, first of all, Moses didn't command it. Look at what Jesus says, verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. He didn't command them. He allowed them. And it was because of the hardness of their heart. It was because of their own sinfulness. And out of the goodness, out of the sinfulness of their heart, there would have been unfaithfulness. And out of the goodness of God's heart, he was being merciful and compassionate to say to this one, if you need relief because of this exception, then you, you're, you're allowed to divorce. Now what is that exception? It's verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Some folks want to look at that and they say, well, it's except for adultery. No, it actually, the Greek word is porneia. If it was a simply adultery, there's another Greek word that starts with an M and I can't pronounce it, but it would be the specific word for adultery. But actually, it's porneia, which is the Greek word for sexual immorality, which covers really any type of sexual sin. So Jesus is saying here, except for sexual immorality, which it seems to be any type of sexual sin, if that person were to commit, that person commits adultery if they marry another. The opposite is true if this person has divorced, but the reason they divorced is because their spouse was guilty of sexual immorality. Well, does that mean remarriage is permissible? It's not even explicitly clear here. It just says the one who's been guilty, if they get remarried, they committed adultery. You don't even say the one who is not guilty is free to go ahead and remarry. I would say that they are free to remarry. Huh. Thing is, is folks, folks that get divorced end up getting remarried way too quick, to be honest with you. And just get hurt and want to jump right back into something else. So let me caution you very carefully. Um, but the ground for divorce here, and you look at 1 Corinthians 7, the abandonment of an unbelieving spouse, those are the grounds for divorce. Um, and if you find yourself this morning and you've been divorced and you've been remarried and you know that your divorce was not biblical, what should you do? Well, first of all, you should not divorce your current spouse, okay? Just be clear. And what you should do is if you, um, if you haven't already, is, and if it's possible, go to your former spouse and tell them you're sorry, okay? And maybe <laughs> that's going to be really hard to do. And then your current spouse... Tell them you love them. Say, so, you know, uh, if you've never had this conversation, you know, we, we, were, we were not married, remarried. On, you know, we, we shouldn't have been married. I mean, biblically when we look at it. But we are. And I love you. And I'm never going to leave you. I'm not going to un unmarry you now. And then just move on. Just thank God for his grace and move on. That's all I know to tell you to do. Um. You don't have to sit around and beat yourself up about it. We praise God for his grace and his mercy. We look at this allowance for divorce in some very limited cases here. 
And we see that God's mercy is displayed in his allowance for divorce. This holy God is a compassionate and merciful God that looks upon some, some limited situations and says, there are some cases where a person doesn't have to live with that. But he doesn't command you to. And I'm going to tell you, if you come to me and say, preacher, should I get divorced? I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you to get divorced. I'm not going to counsel you to divorce. I, all right? There may be times when I'm thinking, man, this is a horrible situation. But I'm not going to tell you to get divorced. I may talk to you about the grounds and whether or not you do have grounds for divorce, but I'm not going to tell you to. God certainly doesn't command you to get divorced. Well, thirdly and finally, when we look at this passage of Scripture, not only does it display that this God is faithful, and that's why he's serious about our marriage commitment, and this God is merciful. We serve a merciful God who allows for divorce when there's sexual immorality. But thirdly, this is a gracious God. Thirdly, God's call to restraint displays his grace. There's a call to restraint that Jesus addresses here in verses 10 through 12. And this restraint that he calls some people to is only possible if it's given to them. Three times in verses 10 through 12, the word receive, probably verses 11 through 12, the word receive is used. There's something that somebody receives and nobody can receive it. If you look at verse 11, to whom it's given. Some cannot receive what he's talking about here, and we're getting ready to talk about what that is, unless it's given. So if something's given, that's grace. And this, what is being given here is singleness. For some, a temporary singleness until they get married. In context here, a singleness that's, that's, that they understand that God's called them to celibacy all their life. So three questions I'm going to seek to answer when we look at these last three verses this way. One is this. And it goes on with verse 10 if you look at it. You say, preacher, what if I'm afraid, you know, you've, we've laid out this weighty, conservative, biblical, God-ordained, God-designed view of marriage that I'm not to enter into lightly or unadvisedly, not to rush into. What if I'm afraid then, I'm a single person here thinking this, what if I'm afraid of or I'm avoiding the commitment of marriage? I'm saying, well, that's the way it is. I'm not ever getting married. I mean, some of you young people out there this morning, I maybe mean, some of you young people are sitting there thinking, that's gross. I don't want to get married anyway. But some of you are thinking, man, I've seen my parents. They ripped my heart out because of how they ripped their heart out. I ain't never going to get married. Maybe that's how you're thinking about it. Disciples, look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. If, that, if that's what it means, if that means if I get on the plane and it's going down, I don't get a parachute to jump out if the plane starts going down. That I'm going down with the plane. In other words, I don't get to bring a, an escape hatch. I don't get to bring a parachute into marriage. If things don't go well, I can just bail out. Find somebody else. If it's that stringent, 
No parachute, no escape hatch. I'm better off not getting married. I'm just going to avoid commitment. You see, in our culture today, certainly there are many young people who've never been married who are avoiding that commitment. So they live together saying, hey, we'll just live together, try it out first, make sure that works out. And that's sin. You should never do that. Flee sexual immorality. To live with someone is not to flee sexual immorality whether you say you're having sex or not. You're not fleeing sexual immorality, so you're sinning. Don't do it. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So don't let the weightiness of what marriage is leads you to conclude I'm better off not married because the Lord says he who finds a wife finds a good thing. It's a good thing to be married. Amen, married people. Some of you can say yes and some of you are you're, you're, you're struggling this morning. Seriously. I remember, um, I've told this before, I didn't get married until I was 31. And uh, my mom was getting worried about me, and she told her friends one time. She told me, she told her lady friends at church in Tennessee, she said, well, I'm Stephen. He still ain't married. They's talking to me and talking to me about me. And I, she said, well, maybe Stephen doesn't like girls. She told that to her friends. And mom told me that on the phone. I said, mom, don't say that. <laughs> it's not true. I'm just shy, and I'm waiting for the right one, and I don't talk about this a lot, but don't say that. You know, for married folks, say amen if this is true. It requires God's grace to be married. Amen? It also requires God's grace to be unmarried, to be a single adult. To be the 31-year-old like I was and your mom saying things like that. <laughs> and actually, you really do desire it very much. And sometimes you stay awake at night and cry about it. It requires God's grace. And it requires God's grace to exercise a restraint But in exercising that restraint, in that singleness, whether that's a calling to singleness permanently or a calling to singleness temporarily, that's an opportunity for God to magnify His grace. Amen? Right there in your singleness. Now, God magnifies His grace in our married life as well and all these things, right? So, When the Bible says it here again in verse 11, no, not everyone can receive this saying. He's not talking about verses 3 through 9. He's, talk, he's talking about this saying is this saying what the disciples just said. If such is the case of man with his wife, it's better not to marry. And Jesus is saying in verse 11, if somebody says, I'm better off not being married, Jesus says in verse 11, not everybody can receive that saying. Not everybody can, can, can say, I'm just not going to be married and accept that and be okay with it and be okay with singleness. That's what he's talking about. Some people have, were born as eunuchs and some 
required to be eunuchs perhaps because they served in a harem or so forth and over the king's harem. And we won't get into all those details, but at the end of verse 12, it says, And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. There are some eunuchs, in other words, some who are not married, who, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, feel called to stay that way, feel called to be a eunuch, feel called to remain single, feel called to live a celibate life. Not everybody can receive that, he says. He says at the end of verse 12, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And at the end of verse 11, again, he says, not everyone can receive this same, but only those to whom it's given. So this calling to a temporary singleness or this calling was in context here to a, maybe what you understand to be, God's called me to be celibate. I haven't ran into very many people who just, I believe God's called me to live a celibate life. I've not ran into anybody like that really, but. There's a couple questions I want to close with that might be helpful for some. Here's a question for you. It may be a question not for you, but it may be a question for somebody in your family, somebody you go to school with. You say, preacher, what if I don't desire marriage because I desire, because I'm attracted to the same sex? What if that's the reason I don't desire to be married? You know, the reality of this sin is much more prevalent, obviously, than it used to be. When you have uh, the government and everybody else in the world celebrating people coming out of the closet, then there's a lot of people going to be wondering, especially younger people wondering, well, maybe I'm in the closet too. Maybe something's wrong with me questioning their gender or questioning their sexual identity, questioning their sexual preference. We're just in a mess. But the church is called to be the church and to love people right where they're at, but also speak the truth in love. So if somebody says, you know what, I don't desire marriage because I'm actually attracted to the same sex. Let's, Let's understand that there are people in the church who are struggling with that sin and let's don't conclude this. Let's don't conclude by saying, well, I can be gay and celibate. That's not your identity. Your identity is you're a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. And you may, you may struggle with heterosexual desires, with lust or pornography, and you're fighting against it. Or... You're a Christian that's following Jesus and you have attraction to people of the same sex and you're fighting against it. That's, that's who you are. You're fighting against it. You're not acting on it. And you may be like this man named Beckett Cook who was in the Hollywood industry for a long time and finally got under conviction in a, after talking to some Christians one day and went to church and was gloriously saved and formerly lived a gay lifestyle. He was asked this question and the Gospel Coalition asked him, there are conversations today about whether one could be a gay Christian. Is there a way to reconcile following Jesus with having a gay identity? So let me read this to you and I hope it'll be helpful for you if you know somebody that's struggling this way. Or if you are. He says, is it reconcilable to follow Jesus and have a gay identity? And he says, it's not. It's strange to me, he says, to see these attempts. He said, I had such a clean break with it, with his homosexuality, 
that it was entirely God's grace upon me to see that it was necessary. Would you call yourself a greedy Christian? Would you call yourself a tax collector Christian? It seems strange to identify yourself with sin. So in fact, these, these attractions and these desires for the same sex are sinful, sinful desires. They need to be called out for what they are. It's a sin to desire something that you shouldn't have. No matter what that is. So I would say to the one that professes to know the Lord Jesus Christ and, and you know that there's some issues going on with you with this and, or, or somebody you love, find your identity in the Lord Jesus Christ and fight against these sins and fight to be pure in a way that relates to here is you may have to come to the point in your life where you say, if I'm going to follow Jesus, then what I have to do is this, I have to be celibate. I cannot be having sex with anybody you know, unless I'm willing to, to marry somebody the opposite sex at some point, unless, unless I find true freedom, God may be calling me to that. Well, the last question I hope might encourage some of you is this. What if I'm single, but I really do desire to be married? <laughs> you're, you're like I was, you know, when I was my, before I met my sweet baby pie, you know. What if I'm single, but I really desire to be married? Singles, ask yourself this question. Are you called to celibacy? Do you believe God's called you to live a celibate life? If not, stay pure while you're waiting. There's a wicked movie called The 40-Year-Old Virgin I've not seen it, just heard about it, and I hope you don't watch that kind of garbage. But just the fact that they make that kind of stuff shows you how the world laughs at those who would wait and wait for the right one and stay pure. The world finds it laughable, but it magnifies the grace of God because God's given you grace. If you receive that, you at this time, God's called you to be celibate until God should bring you a wife or a husband. Magnify the grace of God by waiting. Listen to 1 Corinthians 7 again. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. If you don't believe God's called you to exercise this self-control all your life, then be praying that God would bring you a godly Christian mate to marry. If you say that the Lord's not called you to live a celibate life, and then don't idolize marriage either. It's hard not to do when you're single to think that everything's going to be great if I could just get married. And don't idolize marriage. Ask yourself this, what's my current call in my singleness? Pray that God would send you a mate. But ask yourself right now while, what, and what God's called me, what, what does God want me to do with this singleness? Let me just encourage you with this verse in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. So right now in your unmarried state, see this as an opportunity to magnify God's grace as you wait for a spouse to really focus, though, and not idolize that, but focus on what would God have you do right now in your singleness to most glorify Him and further His kingdom.
Maybe I shouldn't say that I didn't want to preach this passage of Scripture because I always I say that because it's hard. And I can't possibly in one sermon cover everything that you're thinking right now. But I do want you to know I love you. And most importantly, when I look at this passage of Scripture, my prayer is, is not that this would just be a lesson about divorce and adultery. and You would get some facts down, but that you would see something about God. When God gives us instruction in His Word, like He did just now, He's telling us something about Himself. And what He's saying is, I'm serious about marriage because it reflects the relationship between Christ, my, my son and, and the church. I'm serious about marriage because I'm serious about you. This God is, is committed to you. That's, that's one of the things we're supposed to see when we look at what all by the Bible says about marriage. If we're part of the church, we're supposed to see this is a God who, who's faithful to his people. When everybody else is not faithful, mom and dad's gone. Listen, you have a father in heaven. This is a God who is compassionate. We even made that concession in Scripture for those that find this unbearable place in the place of sexual immorality. He is a merciful God. And this is a gracious God who empowers us in our marriages or empowers us as singles. He's a God who empowers us to live a life to please Him and have joy despite our hearts might be hurting. So let's praise our God for who he is and make him known whether we're single or we're married or we're divorced or our hearts are being ripped out or whatever it is. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word and I ask God that as we cipher through in our minds how these words apply to our own life that Lord, the gospel might be our motivation that displaying your faithfulness, magnifying your grace and your mercy. Lord, that these might motivate us to work hard at our marriages for those of us who are married. Father, I pray for those who are, are struggling with different sins and that are affecting maybe their marriages or maybe just... Uh, Maybe they're affecting their future spouses. Lord, uh, I pray for those who have been divorced and for those who are widowed and widowers. And just, oh, this whole topic's hard for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. I pray, God, that you would just minister right now and, and direct our hearts and direct our actions accordingly, according to your scripture, to do what your word says. That you would get all the glory for it. We love you, Lord. You're a great and mighty God. I pray for the lost that are here today that, that they might see that, that you are a merciful God who will forgive their sins by your grace and save them if they would but call upon you, turn from their sin, and trust in Jesus. Lord, do this for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and praise our God together this morning as we sing. If you'd like to come, and I can talk with you now and pray with you if you'd like to come, but let's stand and sing together otherwise. Oh, come behold the works of God, the nations at His feet. He breaks the bow and bends the spear and tells the wars to cease. 
Oh, mighty one of Israel, you are on our side. We walk by faith in God who burns the chariots with fire. Lord of hosts, you're with us, with us in the fire, with us as a shelter. With us in the storm You will lead us Through the fiercest battle Oh, where else would we go But with the Lord of hosts Oh, God of Jacob, fierce and great You lift your voice to speak the earth that bows and all the mountains move into the sea. Oh Lord, you know the hearts of men and still you let them live. Oh God, who makes the mountains melt, come wrestle us in Oh God, who makes the mountains melt, come wrestle us in Lord of hosts, you're with us, with us in the fire, with us as a shelter, with us in the storm. You will lead us through the fiercest battle. Oh, where else would we go but with the Lord of Though the oceans roar, you are the Lord of all The one who calms the wind and waves Makes my heart be still Though the earth gives way, the mountains move into the sea The nations rage, I know my God is in control Though the oceans roar, you are the Lord of all The one who calms the wind and waves and makes my heart be still Though the earth gives way, the mountains move into the sea The nations rage, I know my God is in control Lord of hosts, you're with us in the fire with us as a shelter with us in the storm you will lead us through the fiercest battle oh where else would we go but with the Lord of hosts Lord of hosts you're with us with us in fire with us as a shelter with us in the storm you will lead us through the fiercest battle oh where else would
And as he's coming, if we get him a microphone here, uh, as he's coming, uh, we want to encourage you to, uh, if you want to help out Gina with uh, any of her needs, you can do that. One of the deacons approached me a while ago and said, you know, can we take up a love offering this morning? Well, of course we can do that. And I'm going to ask Brandon, if you would, and, and maybe another deacon to just be standing in the back. If you'd like to give towards that, you can. And, and of course, we have our benevolence fund already, and we'll be helping through that and, and so forth, too. But, but we'll have a couple of deacons standing in the back if you'd like to help give a little bit towards that this morning. Uh, if you're here this morning, I can talk to you about something, pray with you about anything at all, your relationship with the Lord or anything we talked about this morning. You be sure and get my attention on the way out. Come back and worship with us tonight. And uh, don't forget about the, uh, the fall festival next Saturday. We're looking forward to that. All right. Brother Bo, would you close in prayer? Uh, bow your heads with me, please. Father God, we're so thankful. Uh, thankful for your mercy and patience. Uh, we're thankful for your word and counsel. Uh, we're thankful that uh, we could turn to you in times of need. Uh, Father, I just want to lift up any marriage that's struggling right now, Father, and just show them that there could be forgiveness in marriage. And uh, you could... Uh, Unite them stronger, Father. Uh, Father, just uh, want to praise you. Uh, we thank you for forgiveness. Uh, we thank you for mercy. We thank you for your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, we have been to space and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus' body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.